Hello there and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. I want to say a special thank you to our online donors who make this podcast possible. Today we are looking at John chapter 11 and this episode is entitled The Problem with Resurrection. Every week in this series on the Gospel of John, we take time to remind ourselves where the Gospel of John came from. Sometime around the year zero, Jesus was born, and then sometime around the year 30, Jesus was crucified. Shortly after his death, a group of disciples emerged from hiding and told the world that Jesus rose from the dead. This went on for 40 to 50 years before a man named Mark sat down to write the biography of the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. 10 to 20 years after him, sometime around the year 90 CE, two men, Matthew and Luke, wrote their own account of the life of Jesus, and these would become the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. 10 to 20 years after that, sometime around the year 105 CE, John looked at all of the available material on the life of Jesus and said, no, what this story needs is some poetry. For that reason, the Gospel of John is more concerned with symbolism and metaphors than historical accuracy. For that reason, we are going to lean heavily into the symbolism of the story found in John 11, the seventh miracle of Jesus in John's Gospel, which is Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Let's begin this story by reading John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. Now, John is assuming that the reader knows where Bethany is. And if you were to look at a map and find Jerusalem on a map, you would find that Bethany is about two miles to the east of Jerusalem. Not only that, but if you read John chapter 10 before you read John 11, you would know that Jesus was not in Jerusalem, nor was he in Bethany, but he and his disciples were at the Jordan River, which was about 16 miles to the east of Bethany, or 18 miles to the east of Jerusalem. So this story unfolds in Bethany, where Lazarus falls ill. We read in verse 2 that Lazarus is the brother of Martha and Mary, and Jesus is 16 miles away at the Jordan River. In verse 3, we read about the sisters, Mary and Martha, sending a message to Jesus. And the words of this message are, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, we started this podcast reminding ourselves of the emphasis that John places on symbolism and metaphors in his story over historical details. For this reason, when we read the message that Martha and Mary sent to Jesus, we should immediately remind ourselves of the messages that we send to God on a daily basis. Because when I read this story and read the words in verse 3, I read not just a message, but a prayer. Here are Mary and Martha writing to Jesus, who represents God in this story, and telling him, informing him that the one that he loves is sick. And the implicit nature of this message is that they are asking Jesus to do something about it. Which is what makes verse 4 particularly interesting. Because Jesus does not react how we expect God to react. 
We read in verse four, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Verse five, John writes, accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, Jesus stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, I think it's important for us to acknowledge what is happening here, because in response to Mary and Martha's prayer, Jesus Christ, in an effort to bring glory to God's name, delays. And rather than fulfilling all of their desires right away, God holds on a minute. And the explanation that John gives us is rather vain. God wants to bring glory to God's name, so God waits and allows death to happen. What a strange portrayal of God. In verse 7, after delaying, Jesus then turns to his disciples and says, let us go to Judea again. The disciples hear the words of Jesus and they are stunned. They object. They say, Jesus, what are you talking about? Don't you remember in chapter 10? They tried to kill you in Judea. Why would you want to go back there? After hearing their objections, Jesus tells them in verse 11, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to awaken him. Upon hearing these words, the disciples are relieved. They say to Jesus, Jesus, this is great news. If Lazarus is sick, sleep is good for him to recover. I am glad to hear that Lazarus is sleeping. But Jesus was speaking metaphorically. He tells them very plainly in verse 14, No, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Jesus doubles down on the idea that this death will lead people to believing in him. This is a strange reason to allow someone to die. And while you may get tripped up on the reasoning behind this, understand that John is trying to explain the actions of Jesus and ultimately the actions of God. The actions of God are difficult to explain. So while you may disagree with the explanation, I think the thing that we can all relate from this first part of the story is the fact that Martha and Mary pray for something that is good and instead of experiencing God's presence or God's healing, they experience the delay of God or even the absence of God. This first part of John chapter 11 is about the absence of God and experiencing death in all of its tragic presence. After delaying, Jesus and his disciples set out from the Jordan River they travel 16 miles across the desert, about a half a day's journey, and arrive in Bethany. We read in verse 17, when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. We need to pause here for a second and recognize what this statement is. This statement, Lord, 
if you had been here, my brother would not have died, is a lament. And a lament is a complaint or a grievance against God. Martha recognizes the power of God to heal, but also recognizes that God withheld that power. She says to Jesus, look, Jesus, I asked for your help and you delayed. This death is on your hands. Now, after lamenting, Martha proceeds to then rationalize her faith, to talk about why she can still believe, even though Jesus let her down. She says to Jesus, but even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha responded by saying, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus then continues this exercise of rationalization by saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Martha said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. And that ends the discourse between Martha and Jesus. After saying these things, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when Mary heard it, she got up quickly and went to Jesus. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. These are the same words of her sister Martha, and she, just like her sister, is lamenting against God. Jesus, if you had been here, Lazarus would still be with us. The fact that you delayed means that this death is on your hands. Now, I believe that John has both of these sisters lamenting with the same words because John wants us to compare and contrast these two stories. So what happens from this moment forward is not a rational discourse of why one can still believe. But instead, in verse 33, the very next verse after this lament, Jesus saw Mary weeping. Not only that, but Jesus saw the Jews who were also there were weeping. And Jesus was, according to John, greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. Martha grieves in a different way than Mary. Martha grieves by rationalizing what she believes and why she still can or cannot believe what she believed before. Jesus meets her in that rationalization and rationalizes with her. But Mary grieves the death of her brother very differently. Mary weeps in her lament. Not only that, but the entire community around her weeps with her. And Jesus, rather than starting a rational discourse of faith, is exercising empathy by the fact that he also was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. And through this disturbed nature, Jesus says to the people around him, where have you laid Lazarus? The community responded and said, Lord, come and see. And here we get to the shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty-five, when we read these words, 
Jesus began to weep. When Martha grieves with a theological discussion, Jesus meets her there. When Mary grieves by openly weeping without any words, Jesus weeps without words. In other words, God does not view one form of grief as more valid or more important than the other. God meets us in the midst of our tears and grieves with us in whatever language we are grieving in. The first part of this story is about the absence of God. The second part of this story is about how God is present with us in our tears. How God grieves alongside us and that God is not indifferent to our suffering. Rather, God meets us in our brokenness. Which brings us to the third part of the story, which is about resurrection. In verse 38, we read these words, Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha rationally said, Lord, already there is a stench because he has been dead for four days. Jesus then says to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. After the stone was removed, Jesus began to pray toward heaven. Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here so that they may believe that you sent me. And then in a loud voice, Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. Now, I would assume that after Jesus said these words, that there was silence. Everybody waited around him with bated breath to see what would happen next. And for a few painful, uncertain moments, nothing changed. Until all of a sudden, people began to hear rustling from inside of the grave. Imagine that moment for a second. Because upon hearing that rustling, you can imagine that people began to rustle outside of the tomb. You can imagine that people started to whisper to each other. And as the noise inside the grave became louder, the screams or the comments or the ideas or the praises would start to grow into a cacophony outside of the grave. Not only that, but imagine when the first person saw Lazarus start to walk out of the tomb. What would that noise sound like? I imagine an overwhelming scream of disbelief, of people wondering whether what they were seeing was real or some sort of trick. Imagine being there for just a moment when the dead was given life once again. In verse 44, we read, The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth, 
and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And upon unbinding him, you can imagine there was joyous and raucous celebration and people praised God's name and believed that Jesus Christ was in fact the Messiah. And I assume that if you or I were there in that moment, we would have unshakable faith, right? Can you imagine seeing the dead come back to life? What that would do to you? And we read this story with a tinge of jealousy because we think to ourselves, man, if I could see that, maybe then I could leave my doubts behind. And while we think about the miracle of this story and how it proclaims that Jesus has power over death, and the fact is that Jesus is God, I have to be honest with you. While this miracle is remarkable, there is a problem with this miracle. And I didn't think much of this problem when I read this story for the first time or heard this story for the first time a long time ago. I only began to think of this miracle when I saw a movie by Martin Scorsese about 10 years ago. And the movie came out long before 10 years ago, but the movie is called The Last Temptation of Christ. Now, this film takes a lot of artistic liberty on the text and assumes a lot of things that are not explicitly mentioned in the text. I tell you that because in John chapter 12, the chapter after Lazarus is raised from the dead, we read specifically about how Lazarus was a target of the religious officials who wanted to murder him because too many people were believing in Jesus because of the fact that Lazarus came back from the dead, right? And while that's the last we hear of Lazarus in John's gospel, Martin Scorsese made this movie, The Last Temptation of Christ, and upon being resurrected from the dead, Lazarus starts to go into a deep depression. Now, this depression is not noted in scripture, but Martin Scorsese rationalizes this depression because Lazarus can no longer tell the difference between what it means to be dead and what it means to be alive. So this resurrection is viewed in a whole new light with this depression. Not only that, but Scorsese also takes artistic license and adds the inspiration of John 12 and this plot to kill Lazarus. And he includes a scene where the Pharisees murder Lazarus in this movie. And I remember watching that scene unfold and I thought, wow, there's some artistic license. And then I paused for a second and thought, wait, there's a problem with this miracle. And the problem is, while we don't know exactly the specifics of it, is that yes, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, but then Lazarus had to eventually die again. Now, I don't know if he was murdered by the chief priests and Pharisees, as John tells us they were planning to do, or if he died 30 years later from old age, or if he came back to life and two weeks later mysteriously died under different circumstances. But the fact is that you cannot get on a plane right now to fly to Israel to go visit Lazarus because everyone agrees that Lazarus is currently dead. So at some point after coming back from the dead, Lazarus had to go back and face death again. And while some would proclaim this as a worthwhile miracle if Lazarus lived for 30 more years, 
I have to start to ask the question, what if Lazarus lived for less than two months? And then all of a sudden, Martha and Mary have to go through the entire grieving process again. Is Jesus then a good God? Or does he enslave them to grieving? Because when we look at this miracle of Lazarus and the resurrection, it's a remarkable miracle. But we must always remember that it is ultimately a temporary miracle. And when we look at the temporary nature of this miracle, you start to look back at all the other miracles we've read about in John's gospel, and we realize that all of these miracles were, in fact, temporary. When Jesus turned the water into wine, eventually that wine ran out. When Jesus healed a royal official's son, eventually that royal official's son succumbed to death in some way, shape, or form later in life. When Jesus healed a cripple by a pool, that cripple eventually suffered again. When Jesus fed the multitude, it wasn't long before they became hungry again. When Jesus walked on water to calm the fear of the disciples, those disciples felt fear again later. When Jesus gave sight to a man who was born blind, it wasn't long before society cast him out. And it almost raises the question, was he better off being blind where society could accept him? And this seventh miracle where Jesus raises someone from the dead, well, that person eventually died again. There are seven miracles in John's gospel, and all seven of them are temporary. What do we do with temporary miracles? Because Christians love to tell the world, we believe in an eternal God. But when John tells us that the word became flesh and lived among us, the work of this word becoming flesh in Jesus Christ was ultimately a temporary work. All of the miracles of Jesus in John's gospel are temporary. So what do we do with temporary miracles? To answer that question, I want to tell you about the work of a brilliant theologian, a man named James Cone, who lived from 1938 to 2018. Now, to tell you about the work of Dr. Cone, I have to give you some context that came into being well before James Cone walked on this earth. From 1619 to 1865, white Americans bought, sold, traded, and enslaved people of African descent as though they were pieces of property. This is the original sin of the United States of America, and we have a difficult time coming to terms with it today. Our economy was built on the backs of black bodies. Now, what most people fail to understand or fail to reflect on is that these white Americans were predominantly Christians. And what that meant is that these white American Christians would enslave people of African descent. They would whip and beat them and refuse to pay them anything for the work that they did. They would do this for six days and then go to church as though nothing was wrong. So a question we need to ask is how on earth did white American Christians whip their enslaved men and women on Saturday and then go to church on Sunday? And the answer to this question is rather 
disturbing. Because what happened is that white pastors would stand up to white Christians and tell them that this racist hierarchy with white people being on top was in fact God's will. And rather than having Christianity confront the horrors of slavery, white Christianity in America for over 200 years consistently told white Americans that this slavery was in fact God's will. Now, there are a couple passages they repeatedly bring up. One is in Genesis 9, another is in Leviticus 25, and then there's one in Ephesians chapter 6, when Paul writes a letter to the Ephesians and says these words, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and singleness of heart as you obey Christ, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Render service with enthusiasm as to the Lord and not to men and women, knowing that whatever good we do, we will receive the same again from the Lord, whether we are slaves or free. So white pastors would read these four verses from Ephesians to white congregations. The white pastors then would say, see, God wanted these people to be slaves. And God calls them to obey you. If God did not want them to obey you, God would not have allowed them to be born as slaves. So rest easy in this whole societal hierarchy because this is what God wants. Because of this, white Christians would then introduce their slaves to Christianity. Now, of course, these white Christians would skip over the entire book of Exodus where God liberates the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. Instead, they would introduce their slaves to Christianity by way of Ephesians chapter 6. They would say to them, see, God wants to give you freedom in the next life. And all you have to do to get this freedom is obey our commands in this life. Do not cause civil unrest, but just obey what we tell you and God will see you being obedient and God will reward you later in heaven and eternal life. One thing that white Christians have to be honest about today is that heaven was used by white Christians to justify white supremacy. And this practice continues to this day in 2020. To give an example of how this is still used, heaven is still used to justify white supremacy, I want to talk to you about mass incarceration. Now, we talked about mass incarceration last week on the podcast where we identified how incarceration is being used by the United States of America to unjustly target Latino and black Americans and lock them away and profit off the sale and the imprisonment of their bodies. The racism behind this mass incarceration is a sin. So you and I would assume that when a church stands up to speak on Saturday or on Sunday and they speak out against sin, most people would respond positively. But I will tell you that when you speak on the racism of mass incarceration, most congregations, especially white congregations, react by saying, oh, the pulpit is no place for politics. And white congregations will say, we need to be focused on heavenly things. 
And when we get to heaven, we won't have problems like racism. So racism is a sin of this earth that we don't need to deal with later. Just get people to heaven, tolerate racism, don't call it out because that's not what's important. Instead, focus on heaven because that's what people need to hear. So heaven, rather than challenging the sins of today, is actually enabling the sins of today. Throughout American history, heaven has been used by white Christians to justify white supremacy, and this practice continues to this day. Heaven was used by white Christians to justify slavery and convict leasing and Jim Crow. And during the Jim Crow era, black activists began to speak out and there were few as famous or as valuable to moving civil rights forward as Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. But when you speak up against the system and you point out the racism of the system, people get intensely uncomfortable. So uncomfortable, so angry, so filled with their own racism that in 1965, white Americans assassinated Malcolm X. Less than three years later, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated by white Americans in 1968. After MLK's assassination, a recent graduate from Northwestern University was so angry that he decided he was going to do something about it. This man's name was James Cone. And James Cone went and locked himself in a room saying, we have to change the way we think about theology, about God, and about the church for the black experience in America. After several months, James Cone then emerged with a manuscript that would later become the book Black Theology and Black Power, and it was finally published in 1969, just one year after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Andre Henry, a recent graduate of Fuller Theological Seminary, describes what this work meant to black Americans back then and what it means to black Americans today. His words are this, I talk about James Cone's work as what probably would have saved me from a crisis of faith if I had read it earlier. The God that's been presented to me by my peers in these classes, by my colleagues in ministry, this God literally does not care about racial violence against black people. They told me that. What Dr. Cone gave us is saying that white people do not have any control over the religion of black people. White people do not get to determine how we think and what we believe about God. A few years ago, I read Black Theology and Black Power by James Cone, and I will tell you, as a white American Christian, it is hard and difficult to read, but it is necessary. Now, I had always been told that black power was the idea that black people thought they were better than white people. This could not be further from the truth, and you only need to read the introduction of this book to realize how misinformed that understanding is. James Cone writes that black power, in short, is an attitude, an inward affirmation of the essential worth of blackness. This is black power, the power of the black man to say yes to his own black being and to make the other accept him or be prepared for a struggle.
Now, as a white Christian hearing these words a few years ago, I probably would have objected and said, well, where is that idea in the Bible? Well, it can be found in Song of Solomon, which is the only book of the Bible written by a woman. And in Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 5, the woman identifies herself as black and says these words, I am black and beautiful, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. When James Cone writes about the ability of a black American to say yes to their own black being, he is tying himself directly to Song of Solomon, chapter 1. He then goes on to explain his thesis in the introduction when he says, It is my thesis, however, that black power, even in its most radical expression, is not the antithesis of Christianity, nor is it a heretical idea to be tolerated with painful forbearance. Black power is rather Christ's central message to 20th century America. For Dr. Cohn, black power is not a side quest or a hobby that Christianity delves into. Rather, it is the message of Jesus. And to miss black power, to refuse to see the image of God in black Americans, is a violation of the center of the gospel. These are amazing words to read in 2020. I cannot imagine what it would have been like to read them in 1969. A few chapters later, he goes deeper into this theme when he says, this is the key to black theology. It refuses to embrace any concept of God which makes black suffering the will of God. In other words, all of that racist hierarchy that white Christians for generations taught white congregations about how God ordained this hierarchy, black theology would have confronted and dismantled. He then goes on to say that the idea of heaven is irrelevant for black theology. Most Christians I know would hate this statement said out loud in a pulpit like paradox or anywhere else. But you have to understand the context he's writing in. Heaven has been used by white supremacists to justify their racism throughout America's history. For that reason, heaven is irrelevant for black theology. He goes on to say that radical obedience to Christ means that reward cannot be the motive for action. In other words, if you are kind to people only because you want to go to heaven, you aren't actually following Jesus. He goes on to say the free Christian man cannot be concerned about a reward in heaven. Rather, a free Christian is one who, through the freedom granted in Christ, is ready to plunge himself into the evils of the world, revolting against all inhuman powers which enslave men. And when I read that statement, I asked myself a question. Is James Cone talking about Christians today? Or is James Cone talking about Jesus, the temporary miracle worker? Think about these words again, but assume that James Cone is writing about Jesus when he says, rather, a free Christian is one who is ready to plunge himself into the evils of the world, revolting against all inhuman powers which enslave men. This is exactly what Jesus did through these seven miracles, including a temporary resurrection of Lazarus. 
John tells us that the story of Jesus is about the Word becoming flesh and living among us. When the Word becomes flesh and lives among us, Jesus sees all kinds of suffering around him and does his best to do something about it, even if it's just temporary fixes. He's plunging himself into the evils of the world, and he is revolting against all inhuman powers which enslave men. In other words, when the Word becomes flesh and lives among us, Jesus Christ throws himself into human life. He brings too much wine to weddings. He weeps loudly at funerals. He works to give relief to those who are suffering. He stands up boldly against injustice, and he liberates people from mental enslavement. And while everyone he encountered suffered again or eventually died, Jesus tells us it is worthwhile to help people, to heal people, to feed people, to drink wine while we are here with our short time here on earth. Jesus tells us, yes, we are all going to die, so we might as well love with everything we have now. There's no reason to wait to love tomorrow because you don't know if tomorrow is guaranteed. And while so many Christians believe that Jesus came to this earth to show us that there is life after death, I believe that John emphasizes much more strongly that Jesus came to this earth to show us that there is life before death. The word became flesh and lived among us so that we might love courageously in the face of death. If heaven ever gets in the way of us working in love and liberating those who are oppressed by people in power, then we need to get rid of heaven. The temporary nature of Lazarus's resurrection is disturbing. However, I believe that it teaches us that even though our efforts may be temporary, even though our efforts may not have long-term ramifications, anytime we work to grieve alongside those who are suffering and help alleviate their suffering, we are closest to Jesus in those moments. To my siblings in Christ, may we prioritize heaven on earth now over heaven after death later. And may we learn to love courageously in the face of death. And may we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all, in this life, here and now on earth. Amen.